0: Hey, Scott here. Thanks for being part of the Flyover Country podcast community. Really good guest this week. His name is Bruce Melman. I've known Bruce for a lot of years. And if you haven't heard of him, you may have heard of his famous slide decks. Bruce, every quarter, produces these really insightful slide decks to help his clients and other people, casual observers, interested parties, people like me, understand our policy environment, our political environment, the sort of the global um, a political environment where all this information and all these events and all this stuff is colliding and the decks are so well put together. And it really helps organize your thoughts about if you're trying to predict, you know, how's the Ukrainian Russian war going to impact, you know, uh, American political, uh, uh, landscape, you know, it's, it's really good. He does it once a quarter. And I wanted to have him on because I think Bruce is one of the most insightful thinkers. He's one of the best lobbyists you can hire in Washington. And, I, and and although his memos and his slide decks are widely read in the beltway, I wanted to bring him on Flower country because I think a lot of people out here in middle America would benefit from knowing who Bruce Melman is and having access to his slide decks that he puts out. I think his, his knowledge, his intellect, and the way he organizes information is really terrific. Bruce Melman is the leader of the bipartisan firm Melman, Castanetti, Rosen, and Thomas, uh, he has been in a lot of senior positions in corporate America and in politics. I think you're really going to love this conversation. Coming up, Bruce Millman is our guest on Fly Over Country with Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And welcome to Flyover Country. Scott Jennings is here. Glad that you have joined us for another great interview. We're proud to welcome an old friend, Bruce Melman. Welcome to Flyover Country. We're glad you're with us today. Uh, You're not a Flyover Country resident, but you're a Beltway guy. But I think some of the stuff you're producing right now is really interesting to those of us who live out here in middle America. And we could learn from some of the things you're putting together. And, And those of us who have known you... Uh, for many years we've been following your uh, your insights that you produce and i feel like they're they're getting a wider audience right now i mean uh some of these things are getting uh, hundreds of thousands of uh looks at the moment is that right it is you know it's it's
1: amazing what uh having no live sports everybody stuck at home and on the internet will do for somebody who's all about creating uh timely content on uh, on the big issues of the
0: day you have been for about a decade, I think, putting together these memos and slide decks uh, that, I mean, you just, they're free. I mean, you put them out to your clients and uh, and other people that you've, you've known over the years. And I think over time, uh, you know, more and more people want to see them. You do them, I think, at least quarterly. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And they come out and I have to tell you, I've been reading them for a long time. I've used them in some of my teaching materials and some of my classes, as you know, and I've uh, uh, told you about that. Uh, you had one that came out just at the end of uh, February, I think, and you've got another one in the works. Um, tell us about the one that you most recently released and uh, some of your sort of strategic thoughts uh, about what's going on in the world right now.
1: Well, it's funny. The one that I most recently released actually wasn't a slide deck. It was a two-page memo trying to uh, issue spot what the Russian invasion of Ukraine probably means for American politics and policy. And there was that, that was just because we have a lot of clients and a lot of investor types who are interested in our thoughts. There was so much interest and feedback in the two-page memo, it's going to turn into the Q1 slide deck coming out sometime next week.
0: Uh, I have to ask you, I mean, given what's unfolding before our eyes every day and and the way the Ukrainian conflict with Russia has played out, are you finding it difficult to make definitive sort of statements or predictions about what's happening? I mean, I, I mean I've been surprised at at the fact that the Ukrainians have put up such a resistance, for, for instance, so that's lengthened the the tail of this thing, and 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 I think had other ripple effects. What's your sort of view on on how American policymakers and corporations should be viewing this conflict, given the you know open ended nature of it at the moment?
1: Well, gosh, there's a whole lot there. I guess we'll dive into all of it. You know, I, the way I anticipate uh, trying to explain it is three sections: the opening acts, all about surprises, and you hit the first one right. Uh, Putin miscalculated. Turns out his army is not nearly as lightning uh, uh, tough as everybody thought. Uh, the Ukrainian courage, you know, Zelensky is a superstar, and people didn't realize they were going to be as tough and Churchillian as he's been. Western resolve kind of felt like the era of uh, of you know NATO coming together and saying tough stuff. I mean, Biden had said in that press conference that a small Crimea-like incursion maybe wouldn't. Have the same kind of response. The West, Ger- the the Germans said, uh, you know, we're going to keep uh, Nord Stream two going, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, hell, Swiss banks are saying, get lost. That never happens. Uh, the sanctions, the scope of the sanctions, surprise folks. The speed of divestment by businesses before anybody forced them necessarily to, and the fact is, we watched in the State of the Union it was good old bipartisanship. I mean, it reminded me for that, you know, for 10 minutes until it all went back to normal, but it (laughs) reminded me not quite of post 9-11 where, you know, we were one set of Americans, um, uh, uh, all of of whom agreed that uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin can invade a sovereign nation, that that's something that whatever your political party, however you feel about masks and vaccines is unacceptable. So the opening acts were about surprises. I'm happy to dive in kind of to the middle and the end games, but I also want to Make sure I'm uh, giving you question times.
0: Yeah, I am. Um, I think where people are looking for real insight right now, and and I guess because it's it's sort of what our strategy is. I it seems to me the American and Western strategy is to try to deliver as much pain to the Russian people that they get tired of their regime and then they overthrow the regime. And we've we've been very clear we will not confront Russia militarily. So the only way to do this is via bank shot. The only way to make it stop is via bank shot. In your research for your upcoming uh, deck and for this memo, and, and as you're as you're looking into this, how do you recommend that people measure whether we're having an impact? I mean, if you're trying to get the Russian people or the Russian oligarchs or some layer of Russian society to take matters into their own hands, how do how do we know whether we're having a measurable impact on getting to that outcome?
1: Yeah, it's it's certainly it's something Scott that doesn't have that kind of. Um, you know, nice feel of, of runs on the, uh, runs on the board or, or, you know, or, uh, or a scoreboard you can readily turn to. Um, it feels to me already though, that, that, uh, we know the end game for Putin, a Putin, Russia will be a pariah state forever. Uh, it's just, it's inconceivable that, you know, even if he's like, all right, we're going to stop bombing maternity wards. We'll just, we'll just carve out some of this and be done. Um, the, the West is saying we're done with Russian oil and gas as soon as we can be done with Russian oil and gas. It's hard to see their banks coming back. Um, it's, it doesn't lend itself to a 2020 obvious and easy measurement the way an unconditional surrender in a military conflict would. But, but honestly, you know, you call it a bank shot. Uh, I kind of wonder if all said and done, if I'm Vladimir Putin, if my country is the new Hermit Kingdom, and and we are truly cut out from the global internet, cut out from the global banking system, cut out from the global economy, that may be worse than you know than uh, having uh, our tanks stopped in uh, Kiev and 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 having to retreat some, but you know able to continue in, in in the future. I mean, one of the things that that we're all watching, and I think China's watching really carefully too, is. If they went into Taiwan and they were totally cut off from the global economy, that is a disaster of epic proportions for China. It's obviously worse for people who live in Taiwan. And frankly, it would be an epic disaster for the United States, given how globally integrated we are. But um, nobody, everybody knew there were the two legs to the stool, and now there's a third that people didn't appreciate. Leg number one is military. Leg number two is sanctions by nation states. Leg number three is that the era of business neutrality is over. And that the business community is willing, uh, some call it stakeholder capitalism, but they're willing to step up and say, we're not going to keep doing business with you, even if we're McDonald's or Starbucks or Coke or Pepsi, uh, if uh, if you're going to do this to your neighboring states, that's going to give, I think, a lot of uh, would-be bad actors pause because that's really severe. And if and when the war ends and Biden cuts a deal, doesn't mean any Western law firm that left goes back. It's up to them. Yeah.
0: Do you think, I mean, on balance, what what is most likely to have an impact on Putin's thinking? What the U.S. government and what Joe Biden says and does or what these corporations are saying and doing? Because it strikes me that, to your point, the most sweeping impacts on day-to-day Russian life uh, for the average person over there is going to be in, in these corporate engagements where you can't bank, you can't eat, you can't watch TV, you can't get on the Internet. I mean, that that is day-to-day life stuff. Is it? Is it your view that we may look back on this conflict as the one where actually the corporate world, the private world did more than governments to stop a dictator?
1: I hate to say did more than governments, but uh, that we've now seen this third leg of the stool. We've seen that the, a, a private sector that is um, that is uh, focused and, and ready to engage. We saw it with South Africa and apartheid, but it took a decade or more to rally and rouse the a Western uh, uh business sector and even then they were still slow to come to the dance here it is a lightning speed far faster than Putin's ability to to conquer a much smaller and much militarily weaker na- neighbor is uh the the uh the landing like a ton of bricks of a whole lot of economic pain with a whole lot more possibly to go uh, that to me this is a seminal moment in 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 um, ideally in a future world that's more peaceful you asked at the outset though what's it take for putin I, the only person i've ever predicted less successfully is is former president trump where i like i got everything <laughs> wrong every time i thought marco would win i it just i got everything wrong yeah. um but with with putin at the end of the day i presume the single thing he cares most about is self-preservation mm-hmm. you know and therefore uh he is, uh, I think he is pretty evil. I'm not sure he is, uh, you know, sees the sky as purple and kind of doesn't, c- can no longer make rational calculations. I think he miscalculated really badly. Uh, but at this point now, I think he's trying to figure out, all right, how do I get out so that I don't get deposed at home? But uh, if there are, if we're back to Soviet style bread lines, if we're yeah. back to, you know, they, they, uh, they're, they've lost you know, 10% of their jobs, that's bad news for
0: a dictator. Strikes me that there's some amount of um, face saving that he's going to have to do here. If, if, I mean, it it doesn't strike me that they can have a long-term, you know, pleasant occupation of Ukraine. It's going to be a, you know, even if they topple the government, which is still possible, you know, they're just going to have a constant rolling problem on their hands for, for a very long time. And so saving face here, I think, you know, it's, I think a lot of a lot of our planners must be trying to figure out like what's an off-ramp for him. And so I think there's, you know, what's the government off-ramp? What can what can the western governments do to help create an off-ramp? But you you know, you've raised this issue of of just how vital the corporate engagement has been and it strikes me that you know, it may be that some of the off-ramp here will be that corporations end up coming back to the table and re-engaging with the Russians if it means putting an end to the hostilities. Do you anticipate that at the highest levels of our government, you'll see coordination between our diplomats and our corporate executives and sort of uh, almost like a public-private partnership of creating the face-saving off-ramp? Because I feel like heretofore, it's been a little ad hoc. You've had what the government's doing and then corporations are making their individual decisions, but the off-ramp, it may be more of a partnership. Yes?
1: No, I very much think so. And to your point, I don't think uh even really experienced people like Secretary of State Blinken, nobody recognized that the corporate sector acting the way they are right now was kind of a club in the bag you could play. And all of a sudden, um, they do realize, wow, this is crazy punching power. I, I would suspect if you're Vladimir Putin and you don't want to be deposed, and you, you know, you know in history when they lost the Crimean War, the Tsar left uh, when they, uh, when it, after they lost the lost Je- the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, there was the 1905 revolution. After World War I, there was the communist revolution. Uh, after uh, Afghanistan debacle for the Soviets, the K- Soviet Union collapsed. You don't want to be a Russian leader who loses uh, a, a, a war. It doesn't work out very well for you. So if and when they're trying to negotiate terms, um, you would imagine they're going to want actions that the US government doesn't have control over. And so I will be, I will expect that the president, secretary of state and others will call some leaders and say, McDonald's, we need you to open back up um, for for the nation. You know, This is the price of, of, of peace in Ukraine. Um, it, it will be an interesting and fraught negotiation because God bless America, you can't make a law firm go back. You can't make McDonald's or Starbucks reopen. Obviously, they'd like to make money. Uh, yeah. But if you or I were starting a company, boy, would I be cautious about ever investing in Putin's Russia again. Cause I think that guy is so dangerous and I view that investment is, you know, a lot riskier than a whole lot of potential alternatives.
0: You're on the flower of a country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings. Our guest this week is Bruce Melman, who is the leader of the bipartisan lobbying firm in Washington, DC Melman, Castanetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Uh, Bruce is a longtime friend. He's got a long, uh, resume in, uh, Washington policy circles. Uh, and, uh, and he writes these memos and, and slide decks that offer, I think, really interesting insights to clients and other interested parties about what's going on in the world. We've been discussing uh, the Ukrainian-Russian conflict and really the international piece of it. I'm, I'm interested in shifting gears to the American, the domestic political impacts. It, it strikes me that there's a couple of questions that, that will have ripple effects on out. And number one is, you know, we're in the grips in the United States, I think, and it's running through both parties of a real isolationist impulse. You know, Americans are war-weary. They don't want foreign entanglements. They don't want military engagements. It was the impulse, I think, that led both Trump and Biden to try to get out of Afghanistan, which turned out to be a huge disaster for Biden. Uh, It's the impulse that led Biden to, out of the gate, rule out any military engagement over Ukraine. It's the impulse that's led all these Western countries to say, we're not gonna have a no-fly zone. But I'm wondering if, if the longer this drags on, and the more atrocities that we see, like the maternity ward bombing that you mentioned, and now there's even you know, the idea that there could be chemical warfare. Do you foresee the American public softening on this isolationist stance that we're currently in right now? Or do you think it's pretty ingrained in the American electorate for the foreseeable future?
1: Well, you're certainly right. A lot of the populism we've seen has taken the form of, uh, of anti-globalization. Um, it's it's I might call it economic nationalism, but a lot of it is get out, stay out, fewer deals, fewer trade deals. That's what Bernie said. that's what Trump said when they both ran. Right. Um, I think it's it's if it were on only the uh, the the death and atrocity, I don't believe that would probably rouse the nation to say, let's be more engaged around the world. but I think there's the massive economic shoe that's in the process of dropping too. You know, this morning it just came out that inflation was at a 40-year high, 7.9%. Um, right. And uh, and uh, if you think about where the problems are for uh, consumers in America right now, where are our costs really worrisomely high? They are in areas such as uh, energy, food, uh, semiconductors, and things with semiconductors inside them like cars um, and, uh, and the workforce. You know, what will the downstream consequences of this a uh, geopolitical instability, B, worse inflation and energy, you know, a tighter labor market because the, the workforce that's been in Ukraine and Russia, especially in places like tech, are going to have to be uh, taken over for um, materials like nickel and palladium are, are costs are going through the roof. Um, you know, it, neon creates a downstream impact on semiconductors. We're going to feel this in our pocketbook. There'll be a huge debate politically, as you already know, between people who point out that inflation was already out of control and they believe it was Democrat spending that caused it. And the Democrats who are saying it's Putin's price increases and some of it is Putin's prices increases and some of it is COVID price increases and some of it is we kept putting trillions of dollars on an already overheated economy. So there is, you know, there is blame to go around. But where I think the reason I don't think America will ultimately be long term isolationist is is actually China. Uh, and while they're not directly in this i think what some of russia and the economic hits we're going to take will do is will wake everybody up to the unacceptable dependencies that we already have on china we knew it we saw it in covid with ppe we saw it with some of the pharmaceuticals we know it's true in semiconductors you know now we're feeling the hit in in a less direct way but uh, it, it will accelerate the idea that we need allies, that we need uh, friends, that we need economic uh, blocks that are, that, are, that are like-minded, that aren't gonna uh, kind of cut deals with people who, are, who don't have Americans best interests at heart.
0: You know, I've been thinking about um, the, the, the isolationist strain, the anti-interventionist strain that's running through the American electorate right now. And I've been thinking about in six months from today, if Vladimir Putin really goes crazy and doesn't stop at Ukraine and goes into a NATO country, now Joe Biden says we'll defend every inch of NATO soil. But the same impulse in the American electorate right now that doesn't want military intervention in Ukraine would still exist, even if they did go into a NATO country, especially one that you know sounds like Ukraine, say one of the Baltic nations, and I'm I'm what I am worried about, because I'm an, I'm a NATO supporter, I believe in, in American alliances, and I think this has helped keep the world order for, for a long time. But what I'm worried about is that the same impulse that's keeping us out of fighting the Russians in Ukraine could easily be applied to some of these other NATO countries, and that maybe the American people who are war-weary don't have the same adherence to NATO that, say, some of our political leadership in Washington has. I mean, to a lot of people... Uh, you know, it's an old treaty that 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 they don't necessarily agree with today. And uh, and and they wouldn't see the difference in sending American troops and airplanes to airspace over a NATO country uh, or sending it to Ukraine. Do you do you feel like the American people feel strongly about NATO or do you feel like it could there could be weakness in that if, God forbid, uh, Vladimir Putin does something really stupid here?
1: Uh, I think in fear, the reality is we're a house divided. There are plenty of Americans who recognize the need for alliances. The fact that the, in the history of NATO, Article 5 has been invoked once to defend another nation and the nation that uh, whose defense the rest of NATO came to was the United States after right. 9-11. And I believe there will be a significant number of folks who recognize that, you know, okay, you don't want to stop them in Ukraine. You're going to stop them in Estonia. If you're not going to right. Estonia, you're going to stop them in, in Germany. It, 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 you got to stop them at some point. Also, given what we've seen from uh, Putin's conscripted army, um, while nothing is ever easy, it's uh they're they can't take, if they are having trouble with taking a punch from Ukraine, you know, I would imagine if it were merely conventional, if China were out of it and nukes weren't involved, um, they're not looking, they're much more of a paper tiger than, than perhaps people anticipated, which would not make it a cakewalk. There'd be Americans coming home in body bags for sure, but from what we're seeing right now, one gets the impression that the conventional pieces of that America, if we went in with the Powell Doctrine, with overwhelming force and clear uh, objectives to get out, you know, sort of like George H.W. Bush. I mean, that's not quite modern times, but there was the nation rallied. We saw it even with W. The nation rallied in the early innings of, of Afghanistan before things uh, bogged down and and, uh, and stayed there. Um, I think if we were coming to the defense of Estonia, there would be the mix. There'd be plenty of Americans uh, on cable and elsewhere who would say it's not our fight. we don't belong there. We yeah. shouldn't be in NATO anyway. But I think there a majority of Americans would disagree and would say that we have an obligation um, uh, and and uh, and you know and then the, the 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 true fear is uh, so say Putin's losing a conventional war with NATO. how's he play that and and you know I'm still what I'm so scared about you use the phrase you know, he doesn't deserve an exit with honor, but if he doesn't have any exit at all, he could take everything down. And that's what we've got to avoid.
0: Yeah, this is a, this is a true wild card situation. I heard kind of Lisa Rice on the radio this morning and and she was saying that, you know, it appears to her that he's just no longer a rational actor, you know, that in the past you might've been able to count on some amount of, of predictive, uh, Ability on behalf of American diplomats, because there was a hint of rationalism in his his planning. But this is not as rational. He's more erratic in his behavior. And so that obviously brings into play a lot worse outcomes. Let me turn to the, the American politics of this. You raised it a moment ago, and I want to return to it. Today, the last few days, the Biden White House has been blaming inflation. We have an inflation report today that's terrible. They've been blaming gas prices and overall inflation squarely on Putin. And and uh, and they're trying to get the American people to forget that inflation has been a problem uh, really for the last year. Do you believe, uh, based on your experience, that the American people will buy this argument or do you think that uh, perhaps the Biden White House isn't giving the American people enough credit for being as smart as they are? Yeah, so first, I'm not, you're right, you said at the outset from flyover country, but I am
1: from a border state, so hopefully that gets me a free admission to future <laughs> future discussions here. I think the American people ultimately are a lot smarter than most politicians give them credit for. I also think they're actually less angry and they're less uh, obsessed with politics. You know, the uh, the Axios guys came out, I think it was Monday night with the stat that 75% of Americans don't tweet. Yeah. And you know ultimately fewer than 1% are on Fox or MSNBC or others even though they're they're the you know they may lead the league within the cable stuff most of us want to watch a ball game and right. don't want to see a bunch of people like me or you screaming at each other um so i tend to think that people won't be fooled and feel like there wouldn't be inflation but for vladimir putin um the honest reality is it's a complicated conversation and if we're fair Plenty of folks in our party have been trying to suggest there wouldn't be any inflation because of COVID. It's only the result of you know the, the, uh, the legislation that the Democrats jammed through in, in March of 2021. I mean, my take is uh, there were both demand shocks and supply shocks as a result of COVID and bipartisan legislation. Um, it's been worse in the workforce where some people, Democratic governors wanted to give you a handout if you quit because you were afraid of the virus. Republican governors wanted to give you a handout if you quit because you were afraid of the vaccine. That mm-hmm. made the workforce tighter. Um, Democrats, and especially in Western Europe, have sought to decarbonize and punish fossil fuel makers for a long time. That means gas prices and gas, the, the capability to have more gas is lower than it was. You know, because of the Khashoggi murder, there has been a desire by this administration to kind of shun MBS and the Saudis, except now we kind of need them and they're not taking our phone calls, literally. The semiconductor shortage, in part, um, you have to, if you're honest, go back to some of the Trump trade war against China, which had already led to hoarding behavior and led to, you know, messed up tight markets. But then everybody had money and there were no services you could buy. So everybody bought things with chips in them. That's not this administration's fault, but. But the, uh, but the uh, $1.9 trillion was gasoline on a raging fire, and you don't have to take your word or my word for it. Larry Summers, who was the Treasury right. Secretary under Barack Obama, has been uh, clear from the beginning, middle, and end about the inflationary impact of some of the recovery. So I think the American uh, public and electorate will neither say it's all Biden's fault nor is all Putin's fault, but rather it's, it's a mixed bag and they'll, they'll apportion blame in both directions.
0: I've been asked uh, a few times by different uh, people lately about the impact of this energy uh, back and forth that the Biden White House is having with Republicans now um, about whether Democrats may may, at least in the short term, be willing to moderate their anti-fossil fuel views. And obviously, Secretary of Transportation Buttigieg uh, said this week that if you don't like high gas prices, you can buy an electric car, which was an extraordinarily out of touch thing to say, but that really is their position, is that we ought to not be driving uh, vehicles that uh, use fossil fuels. Do you believe, though, as gas prices go up and as the world is sort of unstable for the foreseeable future, that there is any will whatsoever in the Democratic Party to moderate its climate views, if for nothing else than some short-term political relief for their party? Because my presumption is, is that if gas prices stay this high or higher for the rest of the year. They can make all the arguments about Putin they want. They're going to get punished severely at the ballot box unless, unless they show some uh, solidarity with the American people about look, short term, uh, we got to we got to make more gas here in the United States uh, until we can get to this you know electric car future that we want.
1: Yeah. So the Dems seem a hundred percent aligned on the idea of uh, investing in the energy transition. How do we get to a future point? A lot of that's research and development. A lot of that is making. Um, some uh, renewable types more affordable. Uh, that's where they're a hundred percent in agreement. Uh, there are some who recognize that nuclear, it can be safe, is carbon free and is an important part of it. Others disagree. There's many who recognize that gas is a lot more carbon friendly than than uh, than oil say, and others disagree. And then there're the folks who are looking at their reelect and thinking, good God, like you know this we need to be in favor of an all of the above approach where you find, a lot of republicans and not every republican there are some republicans who are you know who are generally uh, anti-renewable and kind of just it ain't broke don't fix it let us drive uh, you know big big cars that and 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 be good it feels to me and I'm I'm a fairly moderate thinker but it feels to me that um we're likely to see uh, enough support collectively for the all of the above approach uh for something that says we need more domestic fracking or fossil fuels and and um, and frankly, it's it's more energy efficient and way more geopolitically wise than Russia or elsewhere. You know, LNGs and LNG exports. At the same time, let's invest in a in a uh, you know in an energy transition and in a, a decarbonized future. It'd be great if America led that too. One other thing that's worth watching, and I know you've been watching politics for a long time. Um, if we went back, Scott, 20 years ago, there were plenty of uh, Dems from the oil patch, fossil mm, yeah. fuel-friendly Dems like Mary Landrew. Part of the problem that we have here is, uh, just like the Dems, any Republican who was, who was great on civil rights, the Democrats took out in the elections because they wanted a Democrat in that seat. Any Democrat who's been good on fossil fuels is probably sitting in a state where they got taken out by a Republican that's led to less bipartisanship on certain issues, uh, just
0: because of the nature of, of, uh, of the home states. Let's, uh shift to the midterm elections. Uh, I want to talk to you about your uh, thought process as the Republicans try to take back control of the Congress and Democrats try to defy history and retain it. I assume like the rest of us, you uh, you believe that the House is destined to go Republican. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to spend a ton of time on that. Al- although I do think, um, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, I, I do think that it- it's possible for Republican analysts right now to Overpredict what the Republicans might be able to do because the wave already started. If you you know, yep. Republicans picked up seats in the 2020 election unexpectedly, and so that probably mutes uh, that probably mutes uh, some of what they can do uh, in this particular election. So, what's your prediction on the House at the end of the day uh, in terms of what Republicans could reasonably expect to do? And then I want to I really want to drill down on the Senate, where I actually think you know, bad map, great environment, and we're not not sure what's going to happen. But on the House, what are your thoughts?
1: I agree with you in the conclusion. It's almost inconceivable that the Republicans don't pick it up. Uh, Every midterm goes against the party in power, and they've got no fouls to give. Net five, and the Republicans pick it up. Um, You're right. It may be more like 1962, where because the Republicans had gained seats in the House when Kennedy got elected, they gained a lot fewer seats in the midterm than, say, uh, 2010, where the shellacking against President Obama was in part Reflective of the fact that the Dems had two way off-the-chart cycles in 06 and 08. Um, the Dems hopes in part they've they've done a good job in fundraising, uh, especially in the Senate, but that's one. You pointed out the targets. Third, uh, even though the Dems have have said that redistricting and gerrymandering is evil, they out gerrymandered the Republicans in places sure like uh, <laughs> you know, right. New Jersey and Illinois. And, you know, it's they it, in the same way that uh, if you New York times and others are reported. They're now out dark moneying Republicans. So they spotted things they said were evil to their credit. I guess they said they ought to ban them when they weren't banned. They said, all right, and then we will out evil you guys. Um, for all of those reasons, I think the the wave, which is a hundred percent coming is not, uh, is not going to give the R's a plus 30 plus 40 uh, likelihood. The real question for me though, is, you know, again, as a, I consider myself from the moderate sane wing of the party. If the margins, less than 10, that's really scarily empowering of some of the off the charts, crazy members. And we have that fringe, as you know, um, if, you know, if you need every single person's vote, if you can't say MTG, go do whatever the hell you want to do, you may have a problem if you're Kevin McCarthy. So, you know, for anybody out there, don't root for a margin of two, uh, root for a margin of 12. So you can, you you can tell the five or six people who have crazy demands to take a walk. Do
0: you? uh I was you brought him up, so I want to ask you about about Leader McCarthy. I uh, I've been sympathetic to what he's having to deal with regarding Marjorie Taylor Greene and and Paul Gosar. I mean, they, they're providing him regular headaches. I mean, we you know Republicans have this amazing environment. Uh, you know, we're we're on our way to winning a majority at least in the House. I mean, brighter days for the party are are, are right on the horizon. And yet, uh, there are people in the Republican Conference that are creating regular headaches for leadership. What's your assessment of how? McCarthy has dealt with it so far. And I mean, my view is he doesn't have any great tools here to control this. I mean, how do you, how do you think he's dealt with it? And, and, uh, and what kind of headaches do you think he's facing if he does become speaker from these people who clearly aren't going away? So on
1: the latter point, it's all about the size of the margin. You know, if, if he needs every single, if he had the margin as small as Nancy Pelosi has, where, you know, the, a few individuals can kind of hold the majority hostage, um, Boy, is it going to be a you know what show in 2023? It's just it will be really hard to see stuff happening. So I hope he gets more. Um, he's got. He, you're also right. He's been dealt a brutal hand. I mean, you didn't drop another name that I think you have to drop. You know, somebody who's out there saying that Putin is brilliant and savvy and otherwise um, uh, uh, making the information and and, and uh, media and money environment a lot less um, simple for both. Leader McCarthy and Leader McConnell, they just want to bring back, they want to win back the majorities. They want to do whatever is best for electability. And yet, there's also, you know, they're they're having to fight a little bit of a rear guard uh, of people who say, no, let's keep relitigating the 2020 election, even though it's been in 90 courts. And every single time there was no proof that there's been, you know, that 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 was a stolen election. That is making life difficult. I I have both sympathy for McCarthy because I think it's a brutal hand. I don't know how he could have played it better. At the same time, I like to think I would have played it differently, but I also think I would have played myself out of the game. And so, you know, I'd ultimately, whether it's now like with Portman or back when with Corker, I don't think I could have, you know, swallowed as much as he has in pursuit of the majority. Uh, but I also, you know, while I don't agree with everything he done, I don't, there aren't a lot of things I point to and say, boy, that was a uh, that was a strategic m- mistake given what he's trying to do. It's just why I've never run
0: for office and never will. Bruce Millman is our guest today on Fly Over Country. And we are talking about uh, current events, public affairs uh, uh, situation in the country, our political situation, and also about Bruce's famous slide decks uh, that uh, have taken on a, a huge following. And uh, when, when's the next one coming out, by the way? You're going to have it ready when?
1: You know, if you don't mind watching my kids and my dog this weekend, I'll get it out for you on Tuesday. Uh, speaking of the dog, here she comes. Um, uh, uh, the, the short version is, I'm hoping to get it out next week. I can't be
0: certain. All right. Uh, before we go today, Bruce, I wanted to play famous lightning round with you. Uh, we ask our, all of our guests uh, short answer or one answer questions, um, and uh, and feel free to uh, be thoughtful, but don't don't be overly loquacious on the answers. Number one. Will Russian soldiers be in Ukraine one year from today?
1: Uh, Yes, as the borders of Ukraine were defined before the uh, thing started. No, not in Kiev. All
0: right. Number two, you've got a long career in Washington, D.C. Who is the most impressive Republican elected official you have encountered in all your time in Washington? (laughs) Uh, In terms of accomplishments, George H.W. Bush,
1: he doesn't kind of convey impressive in, in the same way but i think if you look at what he did he did um uh in terms of conveying with a lot less uh so far a lot less accomplishment nikki haley can blow mm. a room away in a way that that i find impressive uh, i think i i, I love ben sass but maybe cuz he's a you know a nerd like me and so i really uh i, I really enjoy listening to him kind of wax
0: on where the world's going most impressive democrat you've encountered in your work in bc
1: Uh, for purposes of just being in a room, uh, Bill Clinton was just, it's, 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 you know, you didn't, I didn't want to like the guy. There's a reason, thousand reasons I didn't. And just, you still couldn't have, you couldn't help physically feel his impact in a room, in a conversation, President Obama, uh, every single time. And it wasn't a lot, but every single time I got the back bench guy was really well prepared, really thoughtful, completely rational, um, in no way like the caricatures painted, you know, a super impressive man. What is the most amount of time you've ever taken to put together one of these slide decks? (laughs) Thank God I don't clock it or my wife would have divorced me. It feels (laughs) like about 50 hours.
0: What is your favorite hobby that you developed during our national quarantine period?
1: Uh, I'd love to tell you I came up with any particularly good hobby. The reality is I leaned into uh, creating content that looks at politics, policy, and geopolitics. Um, I, uh, I am shame that my
0: handicap is still in the twenties. <laughs> All right. Uh, you give a lot of public speeches and, uh, uh, we'll put it in the show notes, but, uh, we'll, will where you can book uh, Bruce to come speak to your group. What is your best advice for people who have to speak to a big crowd, but don't have a ton of experience?
1: Well, if you don't have a ton of experience practice, you know, practice 58,000 times. Part of the fun of doing slide decks and doing speaking is, it forces you to actually think about what you thought was a good idea. You have, ever, we all have great ideas in our head. Then you, they come out of your mouth and you're like, well, that was stupid. Or that didn't come out very clearly. Same with, you know, I'll put out these slide decks and I think it's awesome. And then I'll present it. And I'm like, that sucked. <laughs> and it'll force me to go back and say, what's my actual point? And how do I make sure what I'm showing is consistent? But if, if, if you need to speak, practice, practice in front of your kids, in front of your family, in front of the mirror, in front of your workers, if it's the first time or the third time you give a speech, you're in trouble. If it's the 50th time, you'll do well.
0: What are you better than 90% of people at doing? <laughs> uh, I'm not, not sure. If we rule out golf. That's number yeah, one. Yeah, I'm
1: not sure there's <laughs> much. I, I think uh, I'd say two things. Uh, one, I, I'm pretty good at uh, pulling out stuff from you know science and technology and investments and politics and kind of building some weird stew of of uh, of Frankenstonian origins. Uh, And I'd say, although it's not quite your question, my superpower is just about every single morning I wake up kind of energized, positive, renewed, and whatever it is that I couldn't figure out or I couldn't solve or that really had me bummed out the night before, I've somehow slept it off. And I'm like, I can, I got this. I can solve this.
0: I can fix this. I know how to do it. Are you making a March Madness bracket? Do you normally make a bracket? And if so... What's your best tip on college basketball as we prepare for the
1: tournament? So, yes, I'm making a bracket. My bracketology in NCAA is even worse than my political uh, (laughs) prognostications, which are very hit or miss. uh, My best friend from kindergarten through sixth grade has a several hundred person thing he does. And the only year I was ever in the money, uh, I did my bracket. And then I went straight George Costanza. And I did... One in the name of my dog, I did a bracket where like every close call that I made sincerely, I flipped. That one came in third. It's nice. like the opposite of everything that Bruce Melman thinks. Here, you know, I'd love to tell you to watch out for Davidson College in uh, in North Car- Davidson, North Carolina. problem is I think too many people already see him coming. And <laughs> we all lived through the Steph Curry year when they made it to the Elite Eight. Right. And, and so they're not going to be able to sneak up on anybody. But there's something like 25-5 and five this season and when they, I've got a kid graduating there, when they get it going, uh, they've, they've got some extraordinary three-point shooting. They've got strength inside. They, they've got the whole package, but it doesn't always show up every game.
0: Yeah, mine is Murray State, uh, located here in Kentucky. And uh, I wouldn't want I, I to play Murray State uh, in the first or second round if I were uh, one of these big teams. All right, uh, you do a ton of work with, obviously, big corporations. You've had a very successful practice. Who is a corporate CEO that you really and personally admire? Um,
1: currently, at, like out there in the real world right now, two lead to mine. One's Michael Dell. Um, in part, I mean, look at look at the guy's success. It's like insanely off the charts. But also, he is genuinely the nicest guy when you talk to him. I mean, one time we were, we, 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 we do work with him. So I, he and I, and, and some other people were walking through a congressional office, and there were boxes of Dell computers with his name on it. And he was he was thanking people like just random like thank you for for you know buying my computer. Um, another one who's, uh, who's in the news a lot. He's actually in the gallery in the State of the Union, Pat Gelsinger at Intel, hmm. um, who, you know, he's not a lot of people know about him yet. Uh, but he is, uh, he's professionally off the charts, brilliant, successful, uh, and maybe the only evangelical Christian in the Valley, um, uh, who's, you know, who is in no way performative about his religion. It's, it's, it's sincerely held Um, He has managed to avoid anything that's culture worry in a place that loves culture wars, albeit, you know, is almost entirely aligned on the other side. Um, If Intel can be turned around, if, if, you know, anything this side of of divine intervention and maybe including divine intervention, Gelsinger is the
0: guy who's going to do it. All right. I'm going to turn to politics for the last couple. What will Joe Biden's job approval be on election day, 2022? 48. Forty-eight. That would be an unprecedented increase in a presidential approval over the course of a midterm year. That would be a historic move for him. That would that would certainly change the dynamics in the Senate races for sure. You know, right now Democrats looking at maybe in minus two or three. Trump may be the only guy who got some of the uh, some of the bump. My my my
1: theory on the whole thing is, um, I think Omicron was the last COVID freakout, Um, and so I think part of the reason the president at the turn of the year was so low. Is because the, the total own goal of declaring independence from covid before delta and before omicron deflated them a ton um it's while i don't think inflation anyway has gone away i think some of the base effects may be removed and i'm also presuming that putin has left that we haven't gone to a real war and that there is a little bit of of, of relief rally in wall street and elsewhere add it all up, I think he has the chance as Trump did on a, on a smaller scale to see his Gallup number go up from the start of election year. All
0: right. Last, uh, round of a uh, bucket of questions here in 2024. Will we see a rematch Donald Trump versus Joe Biden for the presidency? No. Will Joe Biden run for reelection? I bet not. Will Donald Trump be the Republican nominee? I don't think so, but
1: that means he will, because I'm, I've been wrong about I, I I called him dead about a hundred times. I thought he was going to die of COVID if I'm honest, you know, when he had the, you know, the fact that he came out and did the mass thing, I'm like, how this guy is indestructible. Um, I think he, I think right now he's looking at it and saying, I got this, I can run. It'll be, you know, the, the grand, uh, 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 you know, return. And, uh, and I think he's going to give it a shot. And I don't know who can take him out in the primaries yet. Uh, Hopefully your next guest on your next show will, will, will
0: have the answer. If, Biden doesn't run, Um, I'll ask you two questions. Who should the Democrats nominate to give them their best chance and who will they nominate? Um, So so I I
1: start with the base case. They're going to lose the House and I think they're going to lose the Senate. Uh, I also think they're going to collectively agree that that Biden can't win even a rematch and therefore it's time to move on. And they're also going to conclude that Kamala Harris is unlikely to win. So I think there's going to be an epic 68 style civil war within the Democratic Party between those who believe the problem is we need to triple down on progressivism and those who believe the problem is that uh the uh the idea like the the well educated ideologues running the party are not consistent with the rest of the country. I think the latter viewpoint sort of kind of won although the pandemic and 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 uh and Representative Clyburn had a big impact last time. I think this time they're more likely to get a a more legitimately moderate type person. I don't know if that's Pete Buttigieg or not. You know, like Ben Sass, I love people who can articulate um, you know, big complex ideas in in a uh, in a in a relatable way. Um but I don't uh, you know it's he'll have to put a hell of a good year or two in infrastructure deployment in, in under his belt to, you know, to to I think to elevate himself to that level.
0: We'll stop, we'll stop with the Republicans. Who should they nominate in 24 to give the GOP the best chance to win the White House?
1: You know, uh, it's, I haven't studied the field adequately to give you a specific name, but I think you need somebody who can appeal to the people that Trump figured out, uh, felt ignored by the big global elite. Um, at the same time, you need a lot fewer own goals. You don't need to be unnecessarily divisive. Fighting with Rosie O'Donnell doesn't help. You know, asking, uh, you, you know, withholding aid from Ukraine until they do OPPO is not, it's just not a way to, to, you know, ultimately be successful in an American election. You see a lot of smart guys like Tom Cotton trying to marry up some of the economic nationalism that clearly has a lot of currency. You see a lot of folks like Marco Rubio trying to be more working party populist in their economics, so less kind of big corporate. Uh, and you see folks like Mike Pence trying to remain Reagan-esque in their, you know, in their... Um, America has a responsibility to lead the world. Um, I, I don't ultimately know who's going to be able to hit to all fields, but but that's to me the formula to win back the White House.
0: Bruce Bellman, you are the leading partner at Melman, Castanetti, Rosen, and Thomas, you've been a wonderful guest. Thank you for being on Flower of a Country with Scott Jennings. Thanks for having me, man. All right, thanks. Thanks to our special guest this week on Flyover Country, Bruce Melman. He is the leader of the bipartisan lobbying firm Melman, Castanetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Really great conversation. You can find Bruce Melman on Twitter at BP Melman, at BP Melman. And if you go to his firm's website, again, Melman, Castanetti, Rosen, and Thomas, you can sign up and be part of his distribution list for the slide decks that he puts out there that we talked about today today. Really, a good thing to have if you're in the whole corporate public affairs space at all. I would highly encourage you to make Bruce Melman uh, part of your uh, part of your inbox because he can really provide information that helps. He does a lot of corporate speaking, so you can book Bruce to come to your uh, company and come to your event, come to your association and give a briefing. I've had Bruce come to my college classes before that I teach. He does a terrific job. Again, Bruce Melman—that's the guy you want to know at bp melman m e h l m a n on Twitter. And his firm is Melman, Castanetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Thanks for listening to Flyover Country. I'm Scott Jennings. We'll have roundtable every week. We've got special guests coming up in the weeks ahead. Really appreciate you listening and sharing this on your favorite podcast feed. Tell your friends. Give us a rating. We sincerely appreciate everybody's engagement. Thanks. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast.